0: If you have your Bibles with you today, turn with me once again to Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have your Bibles and you'd like to use one of the blue Bibles that are in front of you, you can find the text for this morning on page 982, or as always, it is also printed in your bulletins. We're coming down the home stretch of this terrific letter from Paul to the church in Philippi, and as one would expect when you're coming to the conclusion of a letter— we have returned, uh, Paul has returned over the past couple of weeks to main themes that were contained in the letter itself, to themes like joy and like peace that we looked at together, of, of hearts and minds that are set on Christ Jesus. And in the last section that we've got, which we're going to take this week and we'll take it into next week as well, which is verses 10 through 20, Paul returns kind of to the well, one of the main purposes for which he wrote the letter itself, which is to acknowledge and to, the, the gift that was sent to them and to express his gratitude for it. Uh, by way of reminder, if you haven't been uh, with us, Paul is in prison at this time, and the church in Philippi in, in Greece had sent a gift to Paul, a financial gift to Paul, by way of Epaphroditus. And now through Epaphroditus, this letter is being sent back to them. Now, giving thanks, especially for a monetary gift, is a little more tricky than we might realize. Money matters are complicated, and giving and receiving of finances between uh, friends and between those who are very close to one another, as we've seen that Paul is with the Philippians, and money as it relates to ministry and as it relates to missions can become very complex very quickly. And so while one might think, well, all you have to say to say thank you is to say thank you, in fact, we're going to see that Paul is trying to say that and Not say it or at least qualify it pretty significantly at exactly the same time. It could easily appear when you're looking at something like this or when you're looking at a gift of money that has been given that money is the main thing and that money is the main thing that was sent and money is the main thing for which you are thankful, for which Paul might be thankful. And what Paul is trying to say is that while he appreciates the gift, money is not the main thing. It's not the main thing that he's writing about, and it's not the main thing that has given him joy, even as the money itself came to him. So let's read this portion of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. I'm going to read verses 10 through 13 for us, the word of God. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I'm going to read it for you again. I'm going to read it quickly. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Lord God, we thank you for your powerful word, and we pray that as you send it forth through the working of your spirit in our hearts, that it would penetrate us today. Don't let it lay on the surface of our lives, on the surface of our minds, or the surface of our ears. Do not let us just sit here and be tickled by words, but let them penetrate through the power of your Spirit down into our lives and minister to us and challenge us as they ought to do, for they are your words. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The rare jewel of Christian contentment. I took the title for today's sermon from that title, the title of the sermon is The Rare Jewel. The book is a book that was written in 1648 by Jeremy Burroughs, and of our text today, of this particular passage, he writes as follows. The text contains a very timely cordial to revive the drooping spirits of the saints. A timely cordial to revive the drooping spirits of of the saints. I frankly really like that picture, and I'm going to work that picture all through the sermon today. A a cordial, a liqueur designed for reviving the hearts and reviving the souls, picturing contentment as that liqueur, as that cordial. Contentment is Paul's theme, and it is our theme as we consider this text today. Burroughs, the the author I've referenced, reminds us that when we're speaking of things like this, when we're talking about joy and peace or no anxiety, as we saw a little bit earlier in this chapter, or contentment, we are squarely in the realm of what the Puritans used to refer to as experimental religion. What do they mean by that phrase, experimental religion? Well, it's that which deals directly with the state of our heart and with the state of our souls. How are we in our heart and souls before the Lord? We can speak and we have to speak of theology, and Paul has spoken plenty of theology in this letter. We must use our minds, and Paul has exhorted us to use our minds well. We must practice the faith, and that is the very thing that he called us to do right before the section that I just read for us, to put these things into practice. But when we speak of something like contentment, the heart is the target. That's what's going on here. The heart is the target For Paul's instruction, for what Paul is saying and what he wants to see in the heart of the Philippians. Contentment, Burroughs writes, is a great art. It is a spiritual mystery. Now, I may never be a great artist, and I may never write nor ever be able to solve great mysteries. But there is something, at least to me and I hope to you, that is very encouraging in speaking of contentment in this passage, and it is this, namely, that contentment can be learned. That's what Paul says here in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then, again, in verse 12, in the original, it's a different word, but in ours, the same. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. In other words, contentment isn't something that we've either got it or we don't, and that's the end of the story. So I'm either kind of a contented person or I'm a restless person, period, and there's nothing more to say about it. Paul doesn't approach it that way. Paul instead, hopefully, suggests to us his own experience as a model to say, you know what? You can learn contentment. You can learn to be an increasingly content person, and so with Paul, we affirm that great hope, and we say, okay, well, through a text like this, would you teach us? Teach us about contentment. Teach us about this rare jewel and help us to learn how to to go back to the the image. Help us to learn how to drink of this cordial. Because the cordial that is contentment is something we all want to drink of that. We all want to experience that. All right, I don't have an outline for us today. Uh, I thought about doing one and thought it would be a little bit forced onto this text. I want us to work through... The text as it's presented to us and see within it the lessons that are there, the progression of thought along the way. That's, that's, I think, the best way for us to approach it. So as I said, this section of the letter, uh, verses 10 through 20, is Paul's effort to acknowledge and express the gratitude for the gift that he has received from them. That's evident in the very first verse of our section, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. And it's even more clear in the section that follows this one, verses 14 uh, 14 and 16, just as examples. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. Well, how did they share in that trouble? They shared in the trouble by collecting an offering within the church and sending it to Paul. And then in verse 16, again, he's talking about this idea, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So Paul appreciates what they have done, and back to verse 10, Paul confirms that he has received the gift, and that in and of itself, you know, if you think about Transferring money in our day and age—it's relatively speaking—but if you still transfer money, there's still a part of you that wants to know: Did that person on the other end get it? Now, having lived far overseas, I've—I've I've seen this. There are a lot of questions: Did you actually get what I sent to you? And even in this case, that would be more of a, of a suspect thing. Is this gift that we're sending actually going to get to Paul? or not. So that in and of itself is significant and he acknowledges that he has received the gift and and that it brought him much joy. Especially because what it revealed to them is their renewed concern for him. Now As soon, though, as soon as he gets out of his mouth, or as soon as he has got this written down that the the gift has brought him joy, he immediately begins to qualify what he is saying and not saying about the joy that he has received as a result of this gift. He immediately is saying, first of all, don't misunderstand me. It's not so much the financial gift that you have given to me, the gift itself for which I'm thankful. But instead, what he's really thankful for is what is behind the gift. What does the gift itself represent? And of course, what it represents is very clear, and he states, it represents their concern for him, their concern about Paul and in any and every circumstance, and certainly when you find yourself in a difficult situation and in prison, it is good to be reminded that there are people who are concerned about you. Paul already spoke of this. Do you remember when he promises within this letter itself back in chapter 2 to send Timothy back to them because he has no one quite like Timothy who will be Genuinely concerned for their welfare. Now, in this situation, Paul here has found himself the recipient of that kind of concern. And what does that do? What would it do for you if someone sent you a gift in a situation like that? It warms the soul, right? It warms the soul to know that there are people who are concerned. So, that in and of itself, maybe we can say it this way that's a small sip of the cordial, just a very small taste of the contentment that Paul has. But he speaks this way of having the concern, not only the concern that they have, but of it being a revived concern. He says, you have revived your concern for me. Now, apparently, uh, the Philippians, who had been very early and very generous supporters of Paul's ministry, had not actually supported his ministry for some time. And and Paul is particularly then grateful for not only concern, but for revived concern or renewed concern. So if you've got somebody that you haven't heard from for a long time and you receive a letter from an old friend, you get in touch with an old friend or they get in touch with you, you know the joy that that brings to you to see something that is renewed. And so this is another, if you will, sweet drink. It's the renewal of the concern, the renewal of the partnership. But immediately, again, Paul realizes that, wait a second, that could be misunderstood, I'm thankful for this revived concern that you're expressing. But in effect, he's, he's concerned to say, but don't misunderstand me. That's not a backhanded compliment that I'm giving to you, right? Because it could sound like a backhanded compliment, like, you know, I've been waiting Uh, and now finally you've gotten around to giving this for me uh, and you've been delinquent up to this point. So immediately what Paul tries to do is to clarify uh, that the time between the gifts that they had given was due not to a lack of concern that they had but instead there was no opportunity. There was no way to connect the dots to get the gift uh, from Philippi over to Paul. All right, so that's just the first verse. In this first verse, we've got two statements of contentment and joy. Statement, uh, idea number one is the concern that is, is expressed, and idea number two is that it's a revived concern, a renewed partnership that exists there. And we've got qualifications that are immediately provided for us as well. Qualification number one, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about the concern That is behind the money, and qualification number two, I'm not talking about delinquency. Paul has not been brooding over their failure to help him up to this point. That's verse 10. Money and ministry is complex, and as one personally who has been a missionary, I can testify to you how hard it is to say thank you to people and to receive gifts from people and have that not become something odd that takes place within the relationship. It's hard within a church community. Okay? It's, it's tricky. There are aspects to it that you're kind, of, you're kind of wondering, is this being said in the right way, given the right way, What's the, what's the nature of the relationship there? And it's particularly difficult when you're out and on the mission field as well. Money messes with motives. And it, and it messes with the way that we understand things and appreciate things. And, and so now, now that he's got the initial two sips, if you will, and the two qualifications out of the way, now in verses 11 through 13, he's going to hit the big idea, the big question that he has. And here's the big issue that Paul has with this gift in particular. How do you thank people for a generous, a sacrificial, a costly gift that they have provided? So, so just it's easy to imagine ourselves at the congregation to have heard of one of our missionaries who's in a difficult situation, we sacrificially give a gift, it's sent over to them, we're getting the letter back, how does he thank people for that gift that is designed to relieve or ameliorate at least the needs that he has, when his entire point in the letter thus far has been to encourage them in a joy and in contentment that is outside or above one's immediate circumstances. They wanted to relieve circumstantial problems. They sent a gift for that purpose. He's trying to tell them that in his own life and in their life, circumstances aren't the thing that make you joyous, contented in the Lord. So how in the world do I say thank you? How do I say thank you in this situation? Well, Paul's solution to that dilemma is to be as clear as he can be to go straight at the issue itself. And essentially what he says to them is this. I want you to understand, my beloved friends, that even though you have given a gift to provide for me in a time of need, I am writing to you, I am speaking to you as a person who does not in any way consider himself to be needy. You have provided for me in a time of need and I am not, in fact, in need. And it's okay if we get a little quizzical look on our face at that because one might want to say to Paul, Paul, you are... A, impoverished, B, in prison, C, awaiting trial in Rome. You've been beaten and in prison and in shipwrecks since the moment we've met you. All of your life before us has been characterized by this from the day that you got into Philippi, you were in prison. We've always supported you. We've always provided for you. In fact, we have bound up your wounds. Literally, when you were bruised, you were beaten, you were scarred, some of us here sitting in this congregation are actually the ones who put the bandages around you. And as Paul himself will testify, as we've read already, in verse 16, you, Paul says it. You sent me help for my needs. Once and again, you sent me help. Paul, you are the epitome of needy. <laughs> you are clearly in need, one might want to say. And Paul says, no, I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about contentment from something other than my current physical needs circumstances. He's talking about here a contentment that is not situationally governed. In fact, it's contentment that Paul speaks as governing situations. It's natural for us to think of contentment as being situationally determined, situationally governed, And Paul says, no, 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 that's not my theme. My theme is a contentment that governs the situation itself. It's a reversal. Now, it's been a while since I've uh, wrestled or, or watched any wrestling. But if you know anything about wrestling, you know what a reverse is. A reverse is when you're the person on the bottom, you're the person who looks like, is in trouble in the match, and you get out of that and reverse to be on top. And that's what Paul is doing right here. Paul is doing a reversal. It looks like the circumstances and the situation have the upper hand on contentment, and Paul has spun that around and said, no, 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 no. I'm speaking of a contentment that has governance over the situation itself. And he says that. He says, this present state of affairs, whether... I have been brought low or I find myself abounding, whether I find myself in a time of plenty or a time of hunger, a time of abundance or need doesn't make a difference as it relates to that contentment of which I am speaking. Now, let's be clear. Paul does not deny the existence of varying degrees of present welfare. Again, in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, neither for himself nor for the people whom he loves. He doesn't deny circumstances in the extreme, abundance or hunger, or all points in between. There are lots of points in between hunger and need. Those exist. But I've learned a victorious contentment whatever is my present earthly lot. I've learned something in the situation itself there is a contentment to be had. Now let's pause for just a moment here because something interesting is taking place in this text and it's hard for us to see. Remember how last week when we looked particularly at the list of virtues that is contained in verse 8. I noted that Paul, in verse 8, describing those virtues, is using a list that is profoundly Greco-Roman. He's picked it up, and he said, listen, we can discerningly consider the, the things that are said in this world, and with care, we can use even terms that the secular world might use to describe virtue, as long as we understand them well. Here, in this section, he's following that pattern as well. At least he's following it in verses 11 and 12. The teaching that he's given here would have sounded very familiar to the Philippians as the list that he gave last week as well. These are the the statements that he's made. They're almost direct quotes from Stoics, from the philosophical school of Stoicism. A teaching that emphasized that contentment is found within oneself, in self possession, in self satisfaction, in self sufficiency, in, in having virtues in and of oneself regardless of the circumstances, the external factors. Gordon Fee quotes Seneca, one of the writers of this school, as follows. The happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. And that's, the, that's the word of Stoicism. The present man, the happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. That sounds a lot like what Paul is saying here. It mirrors verses 11, 12 almost completely. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In fact, the word itself, the word for being content or contentment, is a word that literally sounds just like that. That there's a self-possession, a self-strength, a self-sufficiency that is there. That's, that's the word. Now, it had come in common usage, To mean what we think it means in terms of contentment, but the word itself means self strength or self sufficiency. So it sounds like Paul has stepped onto the rock of Stoicism. And he says, in effect, sorry, this is old I'm a rock, I'm an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries, and I don't have any needs. I have no needs. But, but, end of verse 12, I've learned a secret. I've got a secret that I would like to share with you. And what he does then with this secret, and and here think of an old Western or a cartoon, is he pulls up the explosive handle, he pulls it up, he turns it, and he pushes it down. And he explodes the rock of Stoicism, the rock of self-sufficiency, of independence with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the rock of Jesus Christ our Lord. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Boom. That's my not-so-secret secret. If you want to know what my secret is, that's my secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I have no self-sufficiency. I have no self-virtue. I have Jesus-sufficiency. I have no self-strength. I have strength in Jesus. Maybe we can say this in, a, in another way as well. It's not, Paul is not saying here that I've somehow become numb to the world. It's not that Paul has achieve some kind of earthly nirvana where things are just great in his life and nothing affects him and he's just the kind of guy who can go through life and nothing bothers him. It's not that he's unaffected. It's not that he's insensitive or unresponsive to circumstances for himself or for his friends. It is that one circumstance One circumstance, and the one circumstance is the life of Jesus Christ. It is the life, the suffering, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the promised coming of Jesus Christ and our union with him. That one circumstance is the circumstance that governs and puts into perspective all other things that take place in my life. Are those things actually taking place? Yes, as a matter of fact, they are taking place. They're real things. They're actually happening. But they're overruled by another circumstance that has taken place in this world, and I'm in union with Christ through faith. The contemporary tragedy of verse 13 is that it has come to be used of a ridiculous and absurd triumphalism by which we defeat any and all circumstances. And you have to hear the difference between this. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, is used to say, I can beat cancer. First, uh, Philippians 4, 13, I can beat cancer. It's put up in locker rooms. It's used to say, I can win the football game. It's used to say, I can win the basketball game. I can do the best. I can be the best. I can succeed on a test. I can get the promotion. I can get into the school that I'd like to get into. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is the opposite. Okay, The way it is used by many and most evangelicals in this world, is the exact opposite of what Paul intends and of, which he, of what he is speaking in this verse. Jesus and his strength allows me to endure all things, to persevere in all things with contentment, That is the triumph of which Paul speaks. This verse is no statement. It is no guarantee to Paul or to anybody else to get out of jail free because that's what it sounds like. I can break the bars of this prison and get out if I want to because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's learned to drink of the cordial of Christ and it turns out that it's not hidden it's not a mystery it's not secret and it's not a little cruet of cordial you know what a cruet is little things you hold whatever vinegar or something nice little liquid in it's not a little cruet that he's talking about, a cruet of contentment that you have to, you know, you have to dole out these little bitty drops of contentment that are there. And only a few people actually have the cordial themselves, the fortunate few. It is a wellspring. It is a fountain. It is a stream. It is a river. The way to it and the way to him is open. And what Jesus has said is the same thing that Paul has said. Drink, drink. From the water of life and you will have life and you will have rest for your souls. You will revive those drooping spirits. It is that simple. The way is that clear. All of which begs a question, why is contentment a rare jewel? If it's so clear, if the way is Jesus, if the way is with Mary to sit at the feet of Jesus through prayer, through reading of the word, through having no anxiety, through all of the things that we've seen already articulated in Philippians, why is it a rare jewel? Are we just being reductionistic here? Is contentment really much more complex than that? Well, let's be clear. Contentment is not rare because the way is unclear or because Jesus is insufficient. Contentment is a rare jewel because of the obstacles that we put up in the way to it. Our hearts, our world, create things that stand in the way of contentment that keep us from doing the very things that we know would bring contentment to our souls. I ask you this simple question. Do you not find it a law that when you want to do right, evil lies close at hand? When you want to pray, which you know will bring rest for your souls, it'll bring the peace of God and the God of peace. Do you not find it a law Something is in the way. The problem with contentment is not that Jesus is unclear or that the source of contentment is unclear. The problem are the obstacles that come up in the way and they keep coming up. Getting to contentment is like a video game. It is like a video game where the minute you finish one episode in the video game and you kind of have that momentary flash of excitement because you have beat that level... It is immediately sucked away from you. Why? Because the next level's there. The next level is there. And if you get to the point where you have actually completed the game and finished the game, guess what? The new version comes out next year. They feed on our desire to be discontent, they milk it for all it's worth. It's discontentment. There's no contentment there because the job's never finished. The mission never ends. It's a rare jewel, not because the way is unclear, but because of the obstacles that we and our culture put up in the way of getting to Jesus. Jesus makes it clear. It can't be any clearer. The path can't be any, easy, any more laid out than the one that's right in front of me right now. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Drink. Won't cost you anything. Drink, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus invites us to come and to know him and to find in him experimental contentment for our troubled souls in the midst of a tumultuous world. Let's pray. Lord, if our world didn't throw up things in front of us, obstacles to you, we would in fact create them ourselves and imagine them. Things that hinder us from coming to you. We confess it and we ask by your grace help us to pursue you and all the good that flows from you but to pursue you and thus find rest for our souls and we pray this Jesus in your name. Amen.